All right, James chapter number 4 tonight. And uh, I'd like to preach a message to you that I believe will be a help to us. And I believe that it, if it's not medicine, it'll at least be preventative medicine. Because I believe that the message tonight applies to every single one of us in one way or another. So James chapter number 4 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's strong Scripture right there. That's powerful. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice verse 8, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Let's read verse 8 again uh, for edification. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I, I want to thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Lord, we take it for granted so often, the privilege that it is to live in a country where we can still worship you openly. And Father, where we can gather as a body of baptized, blood-washed believers to hear your word as it's preached. Father, to feel your presence manifest in a mighty way in our midst. Lord, I'd ask that you'd have your will and way in everything that takes place this evening. Lord, we've all come here needing something from you. Whether we understand or comprehend that or not, we still have come tonight in need of your presence. So we ask that you'd meet with us here tonight and speak to our hearts according to your will and out of your word. Father, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of James is probably the most practical book in the entire word of God. As you study the book of James, you find that it's full of practical problems that we face every day, and it's full of practical solutions that God offers us from His Word. Uh, there's probably some debate as to who wrote the book of James. You, you know, you can always settle that by saying the Holy Ghost wrote it, and you're always right, amen? But uh, there's no question that there's at least two different Jameses that are mentioned in the Word of God, if not three. And uh, there was the James, who was the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, uh, the disciple, part of the inner ring that walked with our Lord. And then there was uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. He was the one that would have been known as James the Lesser, and he would have been kin to our Lord and Savior. And then there's another James, which might be identical with James, the son of Alphaeus. There's some debate about it. Now you say, preacher, why are we discussing this? Because I believe if we understand who it was that wrote this epistle and who he's writing to, we're going to understand a little bit of context about this passage. I don't think there's any question as we 
read James chapter number 4, that it's some of the uh, most hard-lined, razor-sharp Scripture in all of the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that it's any more or less inspired than anything else or that any other passage is any more or less inspired, but I'm merely saying uh, that God is taking out the, the shears in James chapter number 4. He is dealing with His people in a very uh, straight-talking kind of way. And I think we need that in these days, don't you? I think too often we complicate the Word of God when it's not a complicated book. And I think too often by trying to dance our way around our own sin problems, uh, we cloud the meaning of the Word of God because we don't find it palatable to us. Uh, James is not writing to a lost and dying world when he says in verse number 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Uh, now, when he, the reason he's calling them adulterers and adulteresses is they're part of the bride of Christ. And yet they're stepping out on their husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and walking with the world. He's not talking to lost folks when he uses this language. He's talking to the brethren when he uses this language. Now, that's hard for me. I don't know if it's hard for you, but to know that he could be talking about Toby Weber and probably is a lot of times... That's a hard truth to swallow. But as we read this book, I believe we gain some understanding of what James is saying uh, from the first verse of this book. And I'm going to give you my opinion about this, and I don't know if you'll like it or not, but I, it's still mine, amen, so I'm still going to give it. I, I, let me say that, that concerning the authorship of the book of James, my opinion is contrary to that of most commentators and most uh, common and consensus understanding. Most people believe that this book was written by James the Lesser, uh, the man who was kin to our Lord and Savior. I don't believe that, and I've got several reasons. One of them is, what do we really know about that James? He's sort of an insignificant character in the Word of God. He is there, but you don't find him to have that deep of a relationship with our Lord and Savior. Though he was by blood, it wasn't him that, like John the Beloved, was leaning upon the breast of the Savior and hearing the heartbeat of God. Uh, James the Greater, or James the uh, son of Zebedee, the brother of John, he was the one that was with the Lord and Savior all the time. He was the one that was martyred uh, in Acts chapter number 12. And that gives me another reason to say that. Listen to what it says in James 1.1. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, now listen to what he says here, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now you say, what's the significance of that verse, preacher? We have to understand that James the Greater was a pillar in the New Testament church at Jerusalem. He, along with James and Peter, uh, were, so to speak, the pastors. They were the pillars, the heads of this church. Uh, they were the men that would have been pastoring these people and leading these people and guiding these people. Now, you say, okay, preacher, now what does that lead me to believe? Well, when you go to Acts chapter number 8, you find out that under the persecution of Saul of Tarsus and through the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, that the early church was scattered and they went abroad everywhere preaching. Now, I would propose this to you tonight. I cannot find much reason that James the Lesser, the son of Alphaeus, uh, the uh, man that was kin to our Lord and Savior, I don't find much reason that he would have been writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. But now when I consider James the Greater, the man that was uh, an apostle and a pillar of the New Testament church at Jerusalem, coming to the end of his life, uh, waiting to be martyred, I can see why he would have written to these people. He would have had a deep personal connection uh, with these believers that have been scattered abroad. And uh, much the same way that the Apostle Paul has a deep relationship with those churches that he had had a hand in planting and in nourishing. I believe that this is the James that we're speaking of. I believe when we read the book of James, we're, we're seeing the heart of a pastor. 
I believe we're seeing the heart of a man uh, that has been severed from the people that he loves and that he's been guiding and that he's been leading. And I believe he's writing to them because he hears some things about their spiritual condition. Now, when we keep this in mind, uh, it gives a little context to these first few verses in chapter 4. Uh, you can imagine, if you will, as James is there at Jerusalem and the church has been scattered. Uh, maybe he's already been in prison. We do not know, and we're not going to try to suppose these things. Uh, but you can imagine that James probably got word of some of these believers that had scattered. I can say as a pastor, one of the hardest things about pastoring is watching people go. Now, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's in the will of God. Sometimes it's not. But whether it's in the will of God, whether it's not, whether they leave in a good way, whether they leave in a bad way, it still breaks a pastor's heart to see people go. You still worry. You still get concerned. And you still think often. I can say this. I mean, uh, from the people that even left before I ever came here to pastor, I still, I mean, people that I never pastored that left before I was ever here, I still think about them. They still cross my mind. I still pray for them. I still worry about them. You might say, well, now, preacher, they weren't even any part of your flock. Well, maybe not, uh, but they're people that you have cared about. And some of them I've grown to know. And you have concern for them. And certainly people that have been with us that I have pastored, when they go, you worry about them. Your heart goes with them in a sense. And James is hearing these reports and hearing these things. And I believe that's why he says in verse number 1, "...from whence come wars and fightings among you." He's hearing these reports about these believers. He's hearing about the problems they're encountering. And in a compassionate uh, and yet in a very concise way, James says, and this is just old hillbilly language, "...what has got in to you people?" What is it that is causing you to feud and to fight in the way that you are? I believe it's summed up for us in verse number 8. I want to preach to you with this thought tonight. Listen to what it says. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Could I propose a thought to you tonight? I believe that every single one of us are in one of two places in our Christian walk. We are either drawing or we are drifting. The fact is the Christian life has no position of neutrality. And Christ made this clear in John chapter 15. Uh, he said, you're either abiding or you're not abiding. If you're abiding, you're growing. If you're not abiding, you're dying. And I think we can see this principle played out in nature every day. I mean, uh, living organisms have only one of two functions. They're either growing or they're dying, one of the two. They don't stay the same. The only thing that'll stay the same is something that's already dead. Amen. I mean, if you have an old tree that has been uh, petrified, it might stay the same, but that's because there's no life in it. For everything that's living, we're either growing or we're dying. We're either drawing closer to God or we're drifting away. And I believe the picture we have in James chapter number 4 is a group of believers that unknowingly have drifted away from God. Now, that's a sobering thought tonight. That's a sobering thought to me, not only as a pastor, but as a Christian, to know that in my walk, I'm in one of these two categories. I think sometimes we fancy that we hit plateaus, you know. Uh, and I think sometimes when you look at your spiritual walk, it's easy to believe that that's the case. Uh, but the fact is, there's no plateaus. Uh, you're either growing closer to God or you're drifting further away from it. Uh, you're either growing to love Him more or you're growing to love Him less. And I don't say that to condemn you tonight. I, I say that tonight because I believe it's the truth. All of us, we're either getting closer to Him or further away from Him. I want us to look at a few things tonight. And, I, and I'm probably not going to do any backflips. At least I don't intend on them. I'm kind of worn out. Amen. But I, I want to say that the first thing we see is their condition described. Now, it's interesting that James asks it in this way. 
Uh, James asks it in such a way that would lead you to believe that the church members that he's speaking to or these scattered believers are unaware of what their problem is. He asks it in a question form. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Uh, You know, as we're kind of uh, beginning on this journey of parenting, we're finding, and of course he's too little really to comprehend now, uh, but I I look for the day, you, you ever remember asking your kids dumb questions just so they would have to give you an answer do you ever remember that? And I'm sure when you was raising your kids, or maybe you're raising them now, that you would ask them things like, why was it you did that? Well, you knew why they did it, but you wanted an answer. Or you would say, well, how did that happen? You go in, the whole kitchen's on fire. What happened in here? Why did this happen? What's going on? What you're doing is you're trying to draw them to a place of conclusion. You're trying to get them to recognize that there's a problem. This is what James is doing here. He's saying, here is your problem. There's feuding, there's fighting, there's dissatisfaction, there's contention. Where is this coming from? What is causing this problem? Could I say to you that it's not enough to recognize we've got a problem. We've got to see what the problem is. There's a lot of people in this world that will confess there's a problem in their life, but they're not ready yet to look and examine and pinpoint the root of that problem. Until you're ready to do that, you're not going to fix it. You're not going to change it. You're not going to solve it. James says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? And notice what he says, come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. I would say the first thing he denotes, and listen, I hope tonight we can all examine our lives, is that their peace had been affected. He uses the terminology wars and fightings. There's a contention, there's a struggle that you're dealing with. Do you know that one of the first things that happens when a Christian gets out of the will of God is they become unhappy. They become unhappy. I mean, I'm not one of these power of positive thinking people, and and I don't believe we're here for happiness. I believe we're here for holiness. But let me say this. If we're right with God, our holiness will bring us happiness. If, if we're right with God, there ought to be a joy. And I think for too long uh, we have painted the Christian walk as a drudgery and as a duty and as a burden when it ought to be a joy that we get to walk with God. But that's not the picture of these believers. He, James says, all I'm hearing is about feuding and fighting, that you have no peace in your life whatsoever. I, I've seen it time and time again as a pastor. You can almost see it outwardly. And I hope you understand what I mean when I say that. I'm not saying it's my job to go around and micromanage people's spiritual walks. But I'll say this. I've seen some people, when they've got out of the will of God, it was almost like you could see it on their face. Their peace was just gone. Miserable, sour, unhappy, on edge. All the time, their peace was just robbed from them. They had no solace in anything. He addresses this issue. Notice verse number 2. And this is similar, but there's a difference. He says, Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Notice these words again that he uses, ye lust. That's a word of desire. He says, and desire to have. Not only did they lose their peace, but they lost their pacification. There was no solace, but there was no satisfaction. Can I say that for the Christian out of the will of God, there is nothing that will satisfy you. Uh, let me tell you how big of a scoundrel the devil is. Are you ready? The devil is such a scoundrel. He'll get you out of the will of God, and, and he does it through sin, mind you. And then you know what he'll do? He'll come along and he'll say, you know why you're not happy? You're not happy because you're a spouse. Or he'll come along and he'll say, you know, you're not happy because you're a church family. 
Or he'll say, you know, you're not happy because of that job you're working. Or, you know, you're not happy because of this and because of that. When at the sheer end of the day, the reason we're not happy is because we have sin in our lives. There's no satisfaction. You know what he gets you to do? Oh, listen to how sneaky the devil is. He'll get you to walk out on your family, your spouse, quit church, get your life in the tank, brother. And then he'll come along and laugh at you and say, you know, it never was any of that. It was that you had sin in your life. And when there's sin, there's no satisfaction. You see that in the life of the prodigal son. There was no satisfaction in his life whatsoever. Why do you think it was he lived to such excess? I mean, I understand kids have a tendency to go to excess no matter what adults do too. Uh, but what did he do? He went into a far country, country and he wasted his substance on riotous living. What was he trying to do? He was trying to get some satisfaction. He hadn't had no peace ever since he left daddy's house. And he was trying to do something to fill that void in his life, to get some sense of satisfaction. He never could find it. He wound up at the bottom of a pig trough, never could find the satisfaction. Let me tell you something. It's a sad day in our life when we're not satisfied with the things of God anymore. And I'll just be honest, I think, I think we all have just a hint of that if we're not plummied up with it. I mean, part of the reason Christians aren't satisfied is they get satisfied by the wrong things and they ain't never going to be satisfied. We're not satisfied with Jesus Christ. We're never going to be satisfied. And uh, we get our eyes upon the world and lusting after worldly things. We're not satisfied with them because our spirit doesn't bear witness with it. But we're not satisfied with Jesus Christ because we've done got our appetites in the midst of carnality and we want the things of the world. And there's no middle ground and we've lost our satisfaction. He says, you want these things, you desire these things. Look what he says at the end of verse 2. He says, you have not because you ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Can I say that the first thing we see is that their peace had suffered. And the next thing we see is their pacification had suffered. They weren't, they weren't happy anymore. They didn't have no peace and they didn't have no satisfaction. But let me say also, we see that their prayer life suffered. Let me tell you something, and, I, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody in this room, probably more so. Something's wrong when our prayer life starts to suffer. Our prayer life suffering is not just the source. It's a symptom. It's, it's not just the source. Now, it's the source of a lot of heartache. But the reason we pray is because there's something... The reason we don't pray is because there's something already wrong. We don't pray because we don't believe sometimes. Can I be honest enough to tell you, though, though the Lord has never doubted my salvation, I have sometimes. And though the Lord has never doubted His goodness towards me, I've doubted His goodness towards me sometimes. And though the Lord has never doubted His faithfulness, there's been times that I have doubted His faithfulness. Uh, there's no question that we have moments of doubt. And do you know that when we cease to believe and trust God, that's going to put the brakes on our prayer life. Uh, you know why they quit praying? They quit praying because they were asking for the wrong things and not getting them, and they weren't asking for the right things, so they weren't getting anything from God. And so they ceased praying. They just put a halt on their entire prayer life. And do you know what the sad thing is? Listen carefully tonight, church. They didn't even realize they had gotten that bad of shape. They didn't even know it was that bad. James had to come along and describe their condition to them. James had to come along and say, do you see the mess that you're in? You're not happy, you're not pacified, you're not praying. Something is disrupting your walk with the Lord. What was it that was causing it? I'd say we see their condition described, but then we see their carnality described. Look what it says in verse number 4. He begins to dissect their situation. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? 
Now, this is interesting to me. This is interesting because it is not saying that loyalty to the world means being an enemy of God. He's saying friendship with the world means being the enemy of God. Now, you say, why does that, why does that distinction matter, preacher? Because there's a lot of people that would feel like, well, no, I'm not loyal to the world above God. But there's a lot of us that would have to admit that we're too friendly with the world. Friendship with the world is a sign of disloyalty to God. I mean, it's that simple. I know we don't like it. It's not palatable to my flesh, just like it's not palatable to your flesh. But he's not saying if you side against God with the world, then you're the enemy of God. He's saying if you side with the world, you're siding against God, and you've made yourself the enemy of God. He says, whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I would say, first off, that their problem was without. You say, what do you mean? I mean, there was an external problem here. Now, we're going to address the internal here in a moment. But let me say this. I think we have, I think we have tried to internalize our problems too much in the day that we live in. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Because of the way that pop psychology, and we live in a pop psychology world, you can turn on the television any time in the day and you'll find somebody uh, fixing somebody else's problems. And the person fixing the problems usually has more problems than the person who they're trying to fix their problem. I mean, you can turn on any time during the day and you're going, you're going to find uh, uh, Maury or Sally or, or, or Povich or whoever they are. I don't know. I don't really watch them. But uh, Dr. Phil or whoever in the middle of the day trying to fix somebody's problems. And you know what's interesting? They always internalize these problems. The problem is never their environment. The problem is always inward. Now, let me say this. Our outward environment is a direct result of our inward situation. But do you know that fixing our outward problem will do us a lot of good, too? I mean, let me be honest. You know, some people like to say, well, you know, it's, it's not the people I run with. It, you know, that's not my problem. Yeah, yeah, the people you run with can be your problem. Absolutely it can be. I mean, sure, it's about our inward carnality, and we're going to talk about it in a second. James addressed it in a second. Uh, but he doesn't start there. He starts with the outward. And he says, brethren, look around. You're living in the world. No wonder you're not satisfied. Uh, it's not surprising uh, that a Christian, when he is accepted by the world, would have problem being accepted by God. We have a Savior that was rejected by this world. Why would we ex- expect any better? If we're going to be Christ-like, and Christ spoke of it plainly, He said that uh, if you live like I do, if you walk like I do, if you love me, this world's going to hate you. And it's not really hating you, it's hating me because it sees me in you. And then it's, it, it baffles me sometimes as a pastor to, to watch people's lives as they drift into the world and begin to be accepted by the world. And it's always good for about a month or two. And then their spiritual life just hits the bottom. Now, that's no coincidence, friend. I mean, you know, it was when I was growing up, my, my parents, and I'm not, I'm not up here to preach against public school tonight, but my parents went through a lot of sacrifices, did a lot of things to ensure that I could be in a public school or in a, a private school. And uh, let me say that private school kids can be just as rotten as public school kids. Uh, they can be just as carnal. They can be just as worldly. Uh, but they went out of their way to make sure that I was in an environment that produced the Bible around me, in an environment that preached the Bible around me. They did that because they understood this little principle that whatever you immerse a person in, that's going to influence them. Uh, If you put a person in a sin-sick environment, it's going to bring about some sin in their life. And that's just a fact of the matter. 
If you put a person in an environment where they're surrounded by the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, that's going to have a positive spiritual effect on them. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the case with everything in life. It's amazing how we can grasp certain principles in a practical, everyday environment, but then not apply them spiritually. Uh, we're getting ready. We're in the dead of winter right now. But here in a few months, some of you are going to start be putting out gardens, I'm sure. I hope you do. <laughs> and uh, you're going to start putting out gardens. And you're going to start preparing the ground to receive uh, the seed that you're going to put in it. And maybe you're going to do some fertilizer. Uh, maybe you're going to do some chemicals. Maybe you're going to do this or that. And you're going to provide a good environment for that to grow in. And then you're going to go down every day or every other day and you're going to water that to ensure that it has a good environment, that it's not in a hostile environment. Because we understand that the environment affects the growth of things. That's true of our spiritual walks. That's what James is saying here. He's saying it's no wonder you're in the situation that you're in because look at the environment that you're in. He says that the problem is without. But look at verse number 5. Why are they doing this? Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. He says your problem is without. But the reason you have a problem without is because you have a problem within. It's your carnality. Uh, Can I say to you tonight, and I, I know this is contrary to what the world preaches and teaches, but what feels good is not necessarily what's right. And, you know, I know some of you are saying, well, preacher, I've got a few years on me. I understand that principle. And, you know, it seems as though as we get older... We struggle, and I understand, I don't have a lot of years on me, but I examine a lot of people, I watch a lot of people, I see a lot of people's lives. Sin may change its approach and appearance, but sin is still sin. You don't ever outgrow the temptation of sin. You don't ever outgrow the temptation of sin. You may not be tempted with the things now that you used to be tempted with, but it doesn't mean that you don't have a sin nature, and it doesn't mean that there aren't certain things that can plague your life. As young people, it seems like most of the temptations uh, that young people face are the temptations that we usually uh, correlate with temptation. That of lust and that of, uh, you know, living to excess and that of looking at the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing, doing all these things in our life. And I believe that's true. Uh, But do you know the Bible actually gives us all that's in the world? It describes it when it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Do you know that in, in a lot of ways that's a chronology of the things that we deal with? Uh, The lust of the flesh is what most young people deal with. The lust of the eyes seems to be when we're uh, kind of in the the prime of our life and we're raising a family and we're trying to make a living and we're trying to provide some kind of of substance. It seems as though the lust of the eyes is the very thing that entraps us and, and ensnares us. We're always looking for that next bigger house and better car and better environment and better job and all these things. But do you know that as a person gets older, many times it's the pride of life that is a snare to them. Let me tell you something. When, when your attitude, and I, and I don't mean this in an accusatory manner, I'm just preaching now, but if your attitude is, I'm too good to be told, I'm too old to be told, I'm too smart to be told, I'm too set in my ways to be told, I'm not talking about by the preacher, I'm talking about by the Word of God, there's a problem there. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're 7 or 70 or 700. There ain't a single one of us that's above the Word of God. You know what causes that? Our carnality causes that. Within us, the spirit that dwelleth within us is lusting to envy. That spirit is wanting to say, you're not going to tell me what to do. And that's true of a little child, and that's true of an older person. There's a problem within. We can blame everybody else all we want, but the problem is us. Let me give you another thought. This this interests me. I I don't know that I ever saw this scripture in this light until I was studying for this. Notice the little phrase that's used in verse number six. 
The Bible says, but he giveth more grace. That interests me. I, I never thought about this before, but think about what James is saying to these believers. He's saying, as I look at your life, I see worldliness. And you're an adulterer or an adulteress. You're, you're acting as an enemy of God. You're acting contrary to God. And you're doing so because you have a, a carnal nature that lives within you that's driving you to do these things. And he's listing all the reasons that they're doing wrong and all the things that they're battling and contending with. But then he gives this short phrase. He says, but he giveth more grace. Let me say that not only was their problem without, it was worldliness. And their problem was within, it was carnality. But I believe because of verse 6, we're taught that their problem was without excuse. That's what he's saying. Saying, I know you have to face temptation, but he giveth more grace. I know you're going to struggle, but he giveth more grace. I know that it's a strong desire within us to want to do wrong, but he giveth more grace. I believe kind of what he's saying here is similar to the idea that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Most of you know what I'm going to say before I say it. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. I know we've heard people say sometimes that God will never put more on us than we can bear. Do you know that's false? God will, in the way of trials and difficulties, put more on us than we can bear. He did that to the Apostle Paul and to those that were serving the Lord with him. But do you know in the manner of temptation, as in the solicitation to do wrong and to do evil, do you know that God will never allow us to be tempted in such a way that our only option is to sin? Never. That's what James is saying. He's saying, I know that you struggle with these things. I know you've been drifting. I know it's a battle. But God always gives you a way to do right. God never makes us do wrong. It's always on us when we've done wrong. Always. It's always on me when I've done wrong. I can't blame anybody else. It's my fault. It's my responsibility. God has not put me in a situation where I cannot do right. You can always do right. You say, preacher, that's going to cost me something. It may. It may. It may cost you some friendships. It may cost you a job may cost you some uh, relationships with some family members. But what's more important, that we please everybody else or that we please God? I mean, that's really what it comes down to tonight, church. What's more important, that we please everyone else or that we please the God of heaven? I mean, it's that simple. James is saying, you're without excuse. I'm without excuse. We all are. We all have a responsibility. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, I have looked at your life. You've drifted away from God, and you've drifted because of the environment you've put yourself in, because of the inward sin nature that you have, but you have no excuse. So what is their solution? Notice their correction is described. Here's a way out. Here's what we do. Notice first off in verse number 7. The Bible says, submit. Well, underscore that. If you underscore in your Bible, underscore that word submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let me say that if we want to get closer to God, we have to submit ourselves to God. I don't know how aware we are of this, but there is an eternal battle taking place within us. And our flesh will always want to do the wrong thing. And our spirit will always want to do the right thing. And we always have a choice whether we're going to submit to God or not. I don't know if we realize, you know, I think as we get older and as we grow up, we deceive ourselves into believing that we're more submissive than we really are. 
It's amazing how manipulative a little child can be, isn't it? Uh, They learn very quickly how to manipulate. They learn very quickly how to justify what they're doing. When it's wrong, they learn how to make it sound like it's right. Do you know as adults, we don't lose that ability. We have less accountability as we get older because we have less people being judgmental and critical of our lives. We have less people, you know, it's one thing, when you're little, I mean, I remember what it was like in school. Uh, when you was growing up in school, I mean, if, if an adult got in your face and was correcting you, there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to sit there and take it. You get to a certain age, you can walk away, right? I, I, I mean, there's not a lot of authorities that we have in life as we get older. The police and our boss at work and the federal government, amen? I mean, that's, that's about it. We can pretty well remove ourselves from an environment. That is critical of us. And a lot of times that's exactly what we do. And we surround ourselves with an environment uh, that is very, very pleasing to ourselves. And once we do that, it's easy to forget how rebellious we really are. Let me tell you something. If you don't think an adult rebellious, and I know I've said this a thousand times, but you just crane your neck out the window next time you see somebody pulled over, look at the look on their face and tell me that adults still don't have a rebellious streak. We all do. None of us like authority. Uh, You know, Adam didn't either. (laughs) None of us like authority. We all buck against it. And it begins with submitting ourselves to God. We've got to come to a place where we realize that God is God and we're not. We've got to come to a place where we realize that God's right and we're wrong. And if we're going to be right, we're going to have to agree with God. That's the only way. We have to have our will broken before we can be right with God. Uh, understand something. God is sovereign. God is going in a direction. We're either going to have to relinquish our will and go the way He's going, or we're going to go separate ways. One of the two. So we're either drawing closer or drifting further. God is not going to change. He's not going to change. I'm the Lord God of Israel. I change not. He's not going to change. If we're not as close to God as we need to be, it's not because He's changed. It's because we have. We've got to submit our will and our desire and and, and our aspirations to God. We have to say, Lord, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. It began with submitting. It's interesting that uh, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't it interesting that, that once you've submitted to God, the devil has no more use for you? It could be that the devil's main tool to ensnaring us is our own will. Don't you think so? Once you've submitted to God, you'll begin to resist the devil. And once you've done that, he'll flee from you. He knows that if you're submitted to God, uh, his, his resources and his tools that he can use to ensnare you have been greatly limited. Submission is the first thing. Look what it says in verse 8. Draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. This interests me. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, don't, don't try to be too, too dispensational here and say that, that James is now talking about lost people. James isn't talking about lost people when he says this. He's writing the same letter to the same people that he's been writing uh, for three chapters already. He hasn't all of a sudden switched gears and now he's talking to a lost and dying world. No, he is talking to believers and he uses the word sinners. Uh, you remember I said that James is a practical book uh, because these people practically... We're living like sinners. That was what their life was indicative of. Uh, notice he uses the terminology double-minded. Double-minded there at the end of the verse. He had used this terminology earlier in chapter number 1 when he spoke about the request for wisdom and our faith. Double-mindedness. Let me tell you something. A lost person is not double-minded. A lost person is single-minded. 
They are singularly on their way to hell and have no use for God and no use for the things of the Word of God. It's a believer that gets to be double-minded because not only do we have the spiritual man within us, but we still have our natural man. Uh, So essentially what he's saying here, let me break this down as simple as I can. First thing he speaks of is submission. Second thing is sanctification. Cleanse. Cleanse. There's a lot of things we pray for God to do that we can do, and God's waiting on us to do. James does not say pray that your hands would be cleansed. Pray that your hearts would be purified. Now, I understand there is a sense in which God must cleanse us. And certainly the lost sinner, as he comes to Calvary, has no capacity to cleanse himself. And no cleansing of himself will merit any favor from God uh, aside from the cross of Calvary. I understand that. But remember, James isn't talking to lost people. He hasn't been talking to lost people through the whole book. He's talking to saved people. And so this is a practical sanctification that you and I can do. Uh, Let me put it simply. Uh, James says, look, you've got to get sin out of your life if you're going to be right with God. That doesn't just entail asking forgiveness. That entails getting rid of the sin. I mean, sure, we've got to ask forgiveness. There's no question we must ask forgiveness. But it does us no good if we ask forgiveness with no intention for doing right. Can I say this? I don't believe you have to plan on never doing wrong again to be forgiven. But I think if you pray and ask forgiveness, planning on never doing right, I kind of think God doesn't even hear an answer to that. You don't have to believe that. You can call that heresy if you wish. But I think that's nothing but hypocrisy. When we have every intention of diving right back into our sin, and we come before God and give lip service and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me, knowing we're going to turn around and do it, and planning on turning around and doing it. I don't think God has any interest in that. And you say, well, in verse, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. God's not going to forgive us if we have no intention of doing right. That's not to say our intention of doing right earns His forgiveness. That's not to say uh, that we have to uh, believe that we're never going to do wrong again. I don't know of a single person that when they ask forgiveness of God, they don't understand that there's probably going to be times they're going to sin and slip up. But I believe what James is saying here is it does you no good to ask forgiveness if you have no intention of doing right, none whatsoever. It says cleanse your hands. Get it out of your life. If there's something the Lord's dealt with you about, get rid of it. It's that simple. If He's dealt with you about a, a certain movie or TV program or certain music or a certain article of clothing, a certain substance, a certain something in your life, get rid of it. Do away with it. That's practical. That's sanctification. Now, there is a sense in which sanctification is the work of the Holy Ghost through submission in our lives. But let me say there's a practical side to sanctification that I believe we must employ if we are to be right with God. He puts the burden of responsibility upon the believers. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Uh, notice the inward contrition he speaks of in verse number 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. There's got to be an attitude change. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy Heaviness. Now, he's not saying that you ought to uh, mourn over the goodness of God. No, that'd be silly. He's not saying you ought to mourn over the fact that you're saved. No, that'd be silly. What's he talking about? He's talking about the sin that's in their life. And he says you ought to be grieved about your sin. A wise man once said that we will never be broken from our sin until we're broken over our sin. It's got to get to the place where it ain't no laughing matter anymore. Do you know that laughter is one of the devil's chief means, chief means of desensitizing us to sin? Isn't it interesting that the most ungodly, straight-out-of-hell TV you can watch 
is sitcoms, comedy programs. Have you ever noticed that comedy programs will deal with a sin before a drama program ever will? Some of you remember a time when homosexuality wasn't allowed on TV. Wasn't seen. Just wasn't there. And then some of you remember a time in the early 90s when there was a show with a woman who's pretty popular today, who some of you all probably watch, came out on TV and said she was a lesbian. And it was made light of and it was made fun of. After that happened, it opened the floodgate for sodomy and homosexuality on TV. Her show, the Ellen Show, or Ellen DeGeneres Show, whatever it was, was the first show to ever deal with homosexuality in a funny or uh, uh, humoristic way on TV. And some of you remember when that happened in the early 90s. Wasn't long after that before homosexuality was everywhere. Now you cannot turn on the TV. You cannot almost find a show on main network television that does not have at least one sodomite in it somewhere. It's everywhere. Well, how did they do that? They didn't do it through dramas. They did it through comedy. Some of you remember when uh, they were about that close to impeaching uh, our then president for immoral scandals. You remember that? And then what happened, man? Letterman Leno got a hold of it and the Saturday Night Live crowd and started making fun of Bill Clinton and, and, and his adultery and his sin that he had committed while holding the highest office in this land. And before you know it, it was a big joke and it was all funny. And now all of a sudden the country, they're, they're kind of okay with it because he's just like us, you know. If he is just like us, there's something wrong with us, amen. I mean, if, if he's just like us, there's a problem. Now you say, preacher, what are you going on about? I'm saying that laughter is a means to desensitizing sin. And until we take our sin seriously, we're not going to get rid of it. Till we see it as a wicked and vile thing, till we see it as something that's an affront to God, until we see the face of the Savior and our sin as a balled-up fist aimed straight for it, we're not going to get rid of it. It's got to be something that comes from inward contrition. I'm going to give you this in hush. Look at verse 10. It says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. It's interesting uh, that pride is considered an abasing thing here. And humility is considered to be an exalting thing. This is a paradox of Scripture. And you'll find this uh, truth over and over and over again. Uh, But it, it interests me that the humility that is being spoken of here is that of servitude. Uh, A servant is typically someone that's low and that's base. And so in this paradoxical idea that being low will elevate you and being high will abase you, what is being said here is humble yourself to God as a servant and He will exalt and lift you up. Nobody's right with God until they're serving God in some capacity. Let me say that again. Either we don't like it or we don't get it, and either way we need to hear it again. Nobody is right with God until they're serving God in some capacity. And going to church and paying your tithes and trying to keep from being a murderer or a thief or an adulterer does not qualify as serving God. No more than breathing and eating qualifies you as being alive or living. The fact is, not not everybody's going to do the same thing. I understand that. Not everybody's going to uh, serve at the same capacity or at the same level. Uh, But let me say that we all ought to be seeking an opportunity to do something for God. Uh, You'll find that every time someone was born again in the Word of God, they never had to be begged or bribed to serve the Lord. They always wanted to pick up and follow and go and do everything that the Lord wanted them to do. 
when we're right with God, we're going to want to serve Him. It doesn't mean we'll be able to do everything. God doesn't expect us to do everything. But we can all do something for Him. Every single one of us. Here's my question tonight. Are you drifting or drawing? Look at your life and ask yourself, am I closer to God than I was six months ago, one month ago, a year ago, ten years, whenever it may be? Whatever point God fixates in your mind. And if you're like me, God has already fixated a point in your mind one way or the other. God has already put a point in your mind, uh, either a higher spot or a lower spot, either where you uh, were that He's taken you from or where you were that you have drifted from. And where are you at in relation to that? If God spoke in your heart, I can ask nothing more of you than for you to respond to God, be obedient to Him tonight. I hope that you will.